Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Rock Community Church. I'm Pastor Mark. If you're visiting with us, thanks for being here. Um, we, love, we love the Lord, we love each other, and hope you feel welcome here. A couple things. We finished Psalms, uh, not all of them, but the Psalm study. Last week, we're starting the book of Mark. And so we're going to do an introduction to Mark today. And then next week, we're going <laughs> to take a break from Mark and start Mark the following week, because next week, um, Doug Atterbury is going to preach, and it's his ordination week. We're going to be ordaining him. So until then, he's just Doug. Next week, he'll be Pastor Doug. So we can call him JD this week and then call him PD next week. All right? So he's just Doug now until we ordain him. Anyway, I'm really excited. He's got a lot of family coming, some from out of state. And as I mentioned to you, I asked him if it would be meaningful um, for him to preach on his ordination Sunday, and he said he'd be delighted to do that. So... Very excited about that. How are you? It's good to see you. Um, Pastor John, I, I was going to fill you in, um, and Kay will be here. We got that firmed up this week. Some of you already know this, so um, he'll be here the first weekend in February and again the first weekend in April. He will also be doing Rock of Ages in April um, because I forgot to put that on my calendar. And I says, you should preach, you know, do Rock of Ages in April. He says, well, who's teaching in April? And I says, I don't know. I'm, we'll just bump whoever it is. And it turned out it was me. And I... <laughs> Dick Schwebe told me, and I somehow forgotten. <laughs> BJ's so cute. He's like, oh, no, it's happening already. You're only 51. Uh, anyway, so uh, really excited, <laughs> really excited that he's going to be here. So be in prayer for him. He is it's so cute. He's nervous. He's like, pray for me. I'm nervous. I haven't preached in five or six months or however long it's been, uh, four and a half months. So anyway, excited about that. And then if you haven't, you've probably, maybe you've heard, maybe you've noticed, but I've got um, some back problems that, uh, hit me on Friday afternoon. So I'm doing good now. Um, yesterday wasn't so good. This morning wasn't great. I'm doing okay. But I was in a lot of pain the last uh, couple days and even this morning a little bit. But God's faithful and he's gracious. But interestingly enough, so Friday I was here working on the message and I had about five or six hours of prep left and went to lunch and just zing. And I've had a compressed disc since I was in my 20s. So it's, it's not an age thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> And so every once in a while it just flares up, which is fine. But when you're, when you're preparing a sermon, you have to sit and type. And it's like, oh, I don't know how to do it. It was just a, been an interesting rest of Friday. I went home and rested and, and got up Saturday. And I'm like, Lord, be gracious. And uh, the first hour I spent maybe five minutes um, actually doing work and 55 minutes trying to find a comfortable way to type. And you know how that is, right? Um, and then at 9 a.m. yesterday morning, I panicked. I, I called Pastor Dave and I says, I'm looking through the employee manual for the Rock Community Church. And they, wh- wh- where's the part about sick days? Like, how can I call in? <laughs> I need to call in sick. I can't, I don't even know if I can walk and, and certainly preach on Saturday night. And <laughs> I just panic. I'm like, I don't know what to do, Dave. Pastor Dave, I says, I don't have a backup plan. It's 9 a.m. So I figured you'd want to get a phone call at 9 a.m. as opposed to 4.45 saying I can't preach, right? I, so he just, uh, he, he didn't offer any um, help. Um, he, he essentially, in a very Christian way, said, suck it up. And um, it's like, wow, this, this, this is an interesting job, right? You just can't not show up, right? So uh, I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And, um, and, and God was very gracious uh, last night and this morning. So if you knew about that and were praying, thank you. I have literally felt your prayers. Um, yeah, good stuff. So... If you um, love taking notes, this is going to be a great Sunday morning for you. 
There's going to be a lot of notes if you want to take them. You know, it'll be a great Sunday. If you're tired of me preaching at you, this will be a great Sunday morning for you as well. Um, we're going to do an overview. We're going to get big picture. Uh, we're going to cover like a 700-year period of time. I'm going to do that as fast as I can. Um, kind of leading out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And then we're going to look at the, the four Gospels. And then we're going to take a real brief look at the book of Mark. And then we're going to jump into the book of Mark in two weeks. So with that being said, I, th- I think we're good to go. Yes. So imagine, if you will, that for the next 12 months, you're going to host a foreign exchange student. As they settle into their uh, new environment with you in your home and certainly here in the United States, uh, they asked you an interesting question. They asked you to describe the distinctive facets that have contributed to the American culture. Hmm. How would you answer that? What are the things that make our culture unique? Would you mention baseball, hot dog, apple pies and Chevrolet, Disneyland, country music? Or perhaps you go a little deeper. You mentioned some key events in our history like the Civil War, Pearl Harbor, the Great Depression, or perhaps as recently as 9-11. What about significant historical figures like George Washington? Lost my place. Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr.? If placed in this kind of a situation, you can easily see how challenging it would be to have others really understand you and understand our culture and our country without comprehending on some level the key stories and events that have shaped us as a culture and as a country. Well, guess what? Our dilemma is this. One of the greatest challenges that we face as Christians today is entering into the scriptures, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament world, without having some knowledge of its historical, social, and religious background. The nine New Testament authors, there's 27 books in the New Testament, but there were nine people that wrote them. They did not write these 27 books of the New Testament isolated from reality and hoping that they got it right but they addressed real issues, real people, and real needs of their day. If we were to sit down and have a conversation with a Palestinian Jew from the first century and ask them what has shaped the Jewish people, we would hear five major stories that cover a 700-year period of time. 400 of those years bridge the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this is known as the intertestamental period. Before we jump in, let's pray. God, we thank you, as always, for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for this church that we can worship together here collectively and certainly, Lord, when we are on our own. We, we thank you, as always, for your word, Lord. It's so important to us because we know it's important to you. And from it, Lord, our lives are enriched and we can become more Christ-like because of it. So, Lord, we pray that your word would be honored and that your name would be glorified in our lives this morning. And everybody said, Amen. So, the first story. The first story is the story of destruction and the story of exile. And it's the story of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the city of Jerusalem. As mentioned, this story occurs about 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it picks up towards the end of the Old Testament. These two opponents, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, were responsible, arguably the Lord's responsible, for the demise of the nation of Israel, God's people, which ironically at this point of the exile was now split 
into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel and you had the kingdom of Judah or the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. The Assyrians invaded and conquered Israel, which was the northern kingdom. And they did this in 722 B.C. And many of the Jewish inhabitants were taken captive or relocated to other countries. The Babylonians invaded and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, in, in two, around 600 B.C., but there was two deportations of the Jews, one in 605 and one in 586 B.C. And these two deportations resulted in the scattering of Jews throughout the Babylonian Empire and into foreign lands, and it's called or known as the diaspora. And the diaspora is a Greek noun which means sowing or scattering. Interesting. And it's synonymous with the word exile, that God, through persecution, scattered his seed of his people throughout an empire. And then uh, the city, Jerusalem, being exiled, forced the Jewish people to leave the land that was promised to their father Abraham and settle in lands that they had never visited, which were inhabited by people of different languages and different culture. If the destruction of their homes... Uh, and the slaughter of family members and friends, if that wasn't enough, imagine the unthinkable when the Jewish nation witnessed the destruction of their holy city, Jerusalem. And needless to say, the temple built by Solomon was also destroyed. Oh my, how could this be? What a dark time. The loss of the promised land, the loss of their temple, had an enormous effect upon their psyche which would make sense considering that these were two very important pieces of their identity. Imagine the loss tomorrow that you lost both your home and your church home at the same time and had to go to a completely different culture. That would be devastating. However, besides the promised land and the temple, which were now gone, what was the third and only thing that remained that helped to define the Jewish culture? Anybody know? Torah. God's law. That remained. That's pretty cool. There was a renewed importance, a renewed emphasis on God's law. The land was gone. The temple was gone. But their word remained. And I love that because Matthew 24, 35 says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I'm always encouraged by that. There began an establishment to reemphasize the word of God in what was called gathering houses, or scripture calls them synagogues. Why? For the reading of the law and for prayer. It's interesting how God still today can remove things in our lives, right? Remove land, remove sanctuaries, if you will, or temples, so that we can get refocused on his law and get refocused on prayer. That's not such a bad thing. Hurts when it happens, but so good for us and so good for God to accomplish his purposes. The death of idolatry, formal idolatry, had actually died during this time. And that was a good thing because that was one of the main reasons for the exile was that they were involved in all types of formal idolatry. But now that was gone. And that's beautiful. And God does those things because sometimes we wrestle with idolatry as well. And so he purges that from us. Thank you, Lord. So, The Lord utilized these events to draw people to himself, to wait upon him, to refocus their attention to the scriptures and the promises that he made of a coming Messiah, to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. 
That's the first story. The second story is the story of return and the story of restoration. The Persians, and even some of this is in, uh, we find in our scripture. In 539 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus II overtook and conquered the great Babylonian Empire. So Cyrus takes over, and the Persian Empire was more tolerant than, uh, to the Jewish nation and allowed many of them to return to Jerusalem. Eventually, they were allowed to rebuild their temple even though it was not quite what the original was. But nonetheless, they were able to rebuild it. It was a very exciting time. Imagine the flood of emotions being able to return to your homeland and to rebuild your beloved temple. And Ezra records this in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. So when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. For all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid again. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, as you can imagine, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation was laid before their eyes. And many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of a shout of joy from that of weeping. They shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. What a huge moment, right? Makes sense. Certainly, at this point, they're not free from foreign control, but the Jews were at liberty to worship once again in their temple and celebrate their festivals in the land given to them by God. It's not surprising then that when we get into the Gospels, when we get into Jesus' ministry and what he was teaching, it's not surprising that the Jewish religious leaders would not take kindly to Jesus threatening to destroy the temple. That helps us understand a little bit as we get into the Gospel of Mark. Matthew 27:40 records this, that when Jesus was on the cross and, and people were passing by and they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They were mocking him. How dare you try to say that you're going to take down our temple? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So that's the second story. The third story is the story of pagans and the story of nationalism, the Greeks. Led and ruled by a brilliant 20-year-old by the name of Alexander, the Greek army of 25,000 destroyed the Persian army of 300,000. And this occurred in 333 B.C. With this victory came the importing of Greek language and Greek culture upon all those conquered lands, which, of course, included the nation of Israel. This process of importing and embracing Greek culture and language is known as Hellenization. This led to Greek, the language of Greek, becoming the international language of the world. As we know, the New Testament was written in Greek. But here's what's cool about that. This allowed the apostles and this allowed Paul to travel over the, the entire world and speak the good news of Jesus Christ in one language. That God, he's kind of smart. But it brought some challenges to the Jewish people as well. Being able to experience both religious freedom and financial prosperity, many Jews embraced the Greek culture. They began to change under the Hellenistic influences despite the call of God on the Jewish nation to be set apart and to be holy. We still wrestle with that today, don't we? 
we are called as a holy people to be set apart. And so we still wrestle with that. How do we be in our culture and not be influenced by our culture? How can we be a set apart people to accomplish God's purposes for the world? And we will see that also addressed by the New Testament authors as they call on Christians, you and I, to be holy in the midst of an unholy world and an unholy culture. At the same time, there started to exist some more conservative people groups who called for Jewish nationalism and Jewish practices. Story number four. The story of independence and dissension. The story of the Hasmoneans. As mentioned, Alexander and the Greeks began to rule around 333 B.C., but once Alexander had passed away, and a few decades later, subsequent rulers became less tolerant of, Jewish, of the Jewish nation and began to oppress them by forcing them to do things that were against Jewish practice and would defile their temple. Around 165 B.C., about 170 years later, an elderly priest by the name of Matthias from the Hasmonean family led a revolt and took back Jerusalem and took back the temple. Over time, however, the Hasmonean family lost focus and interest in holiness and culture of the Jewish nation and eventually lost power to Rome. It is this reality that created the rise of Jewish factions, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others like the Zealots. The Pharisees were keepers of purity and holiness and haters of the outside culture of Hellenization and anything foreign. And so with pure and understandable motives, they created something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a creation or collection of laws and teachings that would keep one holy. Perhaps it becomes easier for us to understand their hostile reactions to see Jesus break the law by performing miracles on the Sabbath. It helps us to understand that a little bit more when we get into the book of Mark. And apparently to teach against the law of Moses uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The Sadducees were those who were more politically minded and motivated. They were primarily concerned with wealth and power, arguably to protect their land and keep them from being oppressed again. And they controlled the highest court of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. Because of these diversified Jewish factions or groups, along with what they taught, it's easier to understand the different opinions and reactions of the crowds about the identity of Jesus. It helps us to understand that when we get into the New Testament and into the book of Mark. Was he a prophet like Moses? Was he a kingly Messiah, more in line with David? Was he a priestly Messiah? Matthew 16, we know this, says, How is it that you do not understand that I didn't speak to you concerning bread, but of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that they were talking about their teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so when they came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so we can understand that a little bit more clearly. And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And bless Simon Peter, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that was story number four. Story number five, the story of brutality and resistance, the Romans. As mentioned earlier, uh, internal family disintegration among the Hasmonean family served as a welcome mat for Rome to come in. The Roman military leader Pompey captured Jerusalem in 63 B.C. He proceeded to enter the temple, murder all the priests, and enter the most holy of holies, which was reserved for none other than the high priest. Shame. 
Rome at that point then appointed Herod as king of the Jews. And for devout Jews, this was problematic because Herod was an Edomite and his appointment was not granted by God's people. It was granted by Gentiles. At this point, one can begin to understand why a first century Jewish person, person who was under pagan rule of Rome would be looking for a military leader to release them and lead them. And so we begin, to under, we begin to understand more in the book of Mark or in the New Testament why people would be confused about who Jesus was, although they shouldn't be if they had studied Scripture. We get a glimpse of this in Mark 11 when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the midst of palm branches waving and people shouting Hosanna in Mark 11:7 through 10. They brought a colt and they put their coats down and they spread their coats on the road and spread leafy branches. And those who went in front and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And yet shortly thereafter, many of these same people were shouting, what? Crucify him. So we get it wrong sometimes. The Herodian family was accountable to Rome, which is why the Jewish people had to pay taxes to Rome. Mark 12, 13 through 17 gives us a glimpse of this. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to try to trap him in a statement. Good luck, right? I just think this is funny. They came and said to him, Teacher, to Jesus, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? I don't know, man. If I'm Jesus, I'm just kind of chuckling at this point. Like, really? Like, that's all you got. Right? He's trying to trap me with that. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And so they brought one. And he said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. The average tax rate for Jews was about 50 plus percent, just a little over 50 percent. And that didn't even include the temple tax that they also had to pay. Tax collectors, right? So we know this, right? Tax collectors were so hated that some Jewish religious writings actually permitted lying to a tax collector. I'm actually okay with this. Just, just, just kidding. I, I searched the scriptures hoping that that was adopted, but uh, indeed it's not. Anyway, knowing that, knowing that helps us to understand the reaction that people had when Jesus was found associated with tax collectors and sinners. Are you kidding me? So that helps us as we get into the New Testament to know the kind of culture Jesus was ministering to and in. Also, much of the Jewish population fell below the poverty line because of that. If more than 50% of your income is going towards taxes, it doesn't leave much left. It's not surprising then that when Jesus um, did his miraculous or did his miracles in these miraculous provision of food created a great following. That makes sense. And providing for widows became one of the first issues for the early church to take care of. On the positive side, Rome brought an amazing government and a great infrastructure to the world. Greek continued as the international language and Latin became the governmental language. It's where we get the year 2016 A.D. is Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. Whenever I share the gospel with people, I use that a lot and I just say, what year is it? When you sign a check, what year do you write down? And they say, whatever, right, 2016. It's like, what does that number mean? Where did that start? 
is 2016 A.D. What does that mean? Right? So at one point, we recognize that the year of our Lord is what started how we date stuff. It's like, if you don't believe in Jesus, and quit signing your checks with the, with the year on it. That's what that means. A.D. is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. This Roman influence and infrastructure is also what made it easier to spread Christianity to all the nations. This organization, the roads, and the infrastructure allowed Christianity to spread. God, he's pretty smart. I love it. So wrapping those five stories up, as we enter into the New Testament period, the prophetic voice of the Lord had been silent for about 400 years. Malachi was the last prophetic voice of our God, and we see that in the Old Testament. His book is placed last in the Old Testament. And this period is often referred to as the centuries of silence. Because of this extended absence of the Spirit and the oppression of pagan Rome, most Jewish people concluded that God was judging them for their sin. But perhaps he was merely creating an appetite and a hunger and a thirst for the presentation and the acceptance of his Son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The first to break the silence, turn to Mark chapter 1, the first to break the silence was none other than John the Baptist. So it had been silent for about 400 years. And Mark jumps right in in chapter 1. We'll read the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. This is so cool. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. He wore the garb, if you will, of a prophet. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than me. I'm not even fit to tie his sandals or untie his sandals. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So now God is no longer silent. He introduces John the Baptist who's saying, Jesus is coming. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, tucked in towards the back of the uh, New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, to our forefathers, the nation of Israel, in the prophets... He spoke in many portions and he spoke in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. I don't know how long these last days are going to these last days are going to last, but we're in the last days. That's what's, in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. God has spoken to us in many ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. And so this is God coming down not just to save us, but to speak to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So now the gospel. So that just kind of takes us into the New Testament period. There's four gospels. Why? Isn't one enough? Do I need four stories about Jesus? I mean, it's a good story. Obviously, it's a great story, but do I need four? Why are there four gospels? We're going to hit these and then we're going to come back to them. 
Matthew. What's Matthew about? Well, Matthew focuses on Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew focuses on Jesus as our Messiah. Mark focuses on Jesus the Wonderful, the power of Jesus. Jesus the Wonderful. Luke focuses on Jesus the Son of Man because Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And so Luke focuses on Jesus the Son of Man and John focuses on Jesus as the Son of God because that's who he was. He's our Messiah. He's powerful. He's fully man and he's fully God. And so those are the emphasis that those four gospel writers put on Jesus when they write their gospels. So going back to Matthew, Matthew, the focus is uh, Jesus the Messiah. The special emphasis of Matthew is that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah as foretold in Scripture. Bill Kahn's sitting here. One of these days, Bill's going to do a class on this, right, Bill? About all the prophecy that Christ fulfilled. It's amazing. And that's what Matthew's focusing on, saying for hundreds and hundreds of years, this Messiah was prophesied of, this is the guy. We don't need to look anywhere else. So special emphasis of Matthew is that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah as foretold by Old Testament prophets. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament repeatedly throughout his gospel to make those connections. It makes sense. Matthew seems to have had Jewish readers particularly in mind because they would understand those scriptures better than anybody. So Matthew's audience is the Jewish people. And Jewish civilization had been built around the Torah, around scriptures. Therefore, Matthew appeals to scripture, to his audience, to show and prove that this Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Mark, as we mentioned, focuses on Jesus the Wonderful. The special emphasis of Mark is the superhuman power of Jesus, which demonstrates his deity by all the miracles that he performed. And that's Mark's emphasis. And Mark focuses more on what Jesus did than on what Jesus said. Mark focuses more on what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. He seems to have had Roman Gentile readers in mind as opposed to Jewish readers. So his audience is Roman Gentile readers. All evidence points to the fact that Mark actually wrote uh, his book of Mark while he was in Rome. Roman civilization gloried in the idea of government and structure and power, and therefore Mark calls particular attention to the miracles and the power of Jesus. Makes sense. Luke focuses on Jesus as being the Son of Man. Special emphasis of Luke is on the humanity of Jesus. Luke features Jesus' kindness towards the weak, towards the suffering, and toward the outcast. He seems to have Greek readers in mind. Why? Because Greek civilization represented culture, philosophy, wisdom, reason, beauty, education. Therefore, to appeal to the thoughtful, cultured, and philosophic Greek mind, Luke shows us the glorious beauty and perfection of Jesus, the ideal universal man. Makes sense. And then lastly, John is Jesus, the Son of God. Special emphasis of John is on the deity of Jesus as being fully God. John focuses more on what Jesus said than on what Jesus did, the opposite of Mark. What Jesus said rather than what he did. The primary intent of the book of John is evangelism, and it confronts the reader with the necessity to believe in Jesus. We all need to have that confrontation. John also has the Greek Gentile readers in mind. So in the four Gospels, what that does is it shows us three things. It shows us the Lord Jesus Christ, his purpose, 
his power and his pedigree, his purpose. That's Matthew, that he's the Messiah. He came to save the world from their sins. That's his purpose. His power, that's Mark, right? The power of Christ. And then his pedigree is Luke and John. His pedigree means that he's fully God and he's fully man. That's his pedigree. That's how he's made up. Fully God and fully man. So that's why there's four Gospels, to give us a more complete picture of our Messiah. So now, the Gospels, now we're just going to focus on Mark in the few minutes that we have remaining. The book of Mark was written by Mark, or John Mark is what he's also referred to. He is from Jerusalem, and it was written between 60 and 70 A.D. after the death of Peter. And Mark was a close associate of Peter and a companion of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he was a missionary dropout. I just think that's kind of cool, you know? He went on his first missionary journey and he dropped out and then God still used him. God can still use us even when we drop out of some things. That's okay. Anyway, just a little side note. A number of characteristics of Mark that set it apart from the other Gospels. It, it, it has been said that the Gospel message... Do we know what the... When I say the gospel, what does gospel stand for? Does anybody know? Good news. That's what it means. The gospel message is the good news message. The gospel message, it has been said, is neither a discussion nor a debate. It's an announcement. I love that. The gospel message isn't a discussion. It's not a debate. It's an announcement. And Mark wasted no time making that announcement. In chapter 1, verse 1, he starts right off and says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then off they go. And it starts differently than Matthew, and it starts differently in Luke, and it starts differently in John. But Mark jumps right to it. He makes the announcement. He wasted no time. Mark has a rather abrupt beginning as he moves right into the ministry of John the Baptist. And then he introduces Jesus as having come from Nazareth without giving us anything about his earlier years. Perhaps the main characteristic of the Gospel of Mark is action. For example, there's a word in the book of Mark that's used 41 times and only 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. Does anybody know that word? Okay. That's okay. Neither did any of the other services. The word is immediately or straightway. We just don't use that word straightway much in our English language, so we change it to immediately. Mark uses the word straightway or immediately 41 times in his book, and only 12 times is it used in the rest of the New Testament. So Mark moves fast, immediately this, and immediately he did that, and immediately they went there, and immediately they did this, and straightway they went here. Now this can be interpreted as a mannerism of Mark's, but it seems to be harmonious with the rapid flow of his narrative, of his writing. He dwells more on Jesus' activity than on what Jesus said. And so he shifts from scene to scene without ever really pausing or taking a breath. Now you know where I get it from. Right? I blame it on my mother and on Mark. I just, I was reading that. I thought, that's hilarious. I'm, I'm very similar. Right? I just go from scene to scene. And I don't pause much. Please forgive me. Anyway, so Mark moves fast. The gospel is brief. The, the gospel of Mark is brief. Luke is nearly twice the length of Mark. And it makes uh, uh, me wonder, and a lot of scholars believe, that Mark intended for us to read it in one sitting. And so we have two weeks, and that's just a side encouragement. I didn't do this on Saturday night, I forgot, but a side encouragement. We're going to start getting into Mark chapter 1, first 13 verses, two weeks from today. If you have time, it should take maybe an hour to read the book of Mark. It's 16 chapters in one sitting. I would encourage you to do that. 
And you're going to just, you're going to see that word immediately pop up. You're like, oh my gosh, it is there 41 times. Mark moves really, really fast. You'll love it. So I would encourage you to do it. If you have time, try to get through the book of Mark in one sitting. Uh, I forgot where I was at. Where, uh, da, da, da. Yeah, so yeah, if you read it aloud, it would only take about an hour. So if you read it quietly, it should take you less than an hour. So Mark, for this reason, is often um, alluded to or pointed to as a good place for a new believer to start reading. The book of Mark's a good one, and of course the book of John is also a very good book to start um, somebody who's new in their faith. Either way, there's little doubt that there's a sense of urgency in the book of Mark. And clearly, what could be more urgent than what we do with Jesus Christ? Mark wished to leave his readers. When all was said and done, Mark wanted to leave his readers with a sense of awe, the power of Jesus. And what, what he experienced at Jesus' resurrection, Jesus the wonderful. It's just a wonder of what, uh, who he is and what he's done. And so let's, we're going to hit a few little verses, I didn't post them, um, that calls attention to the fear or the amazement that gripped all who came in contact with Jesus. Because I want that to be true of us today, that when we encounter Jesus, that we're amazed. And I hope to bring that to our time of study in Mark. But look at Mark chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to hit a couple of these. Mark chapter 2, verse 12. He had healed a paralytic. And in verse 12, he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying what? Never seen anything like this before. That's what Mark wants to leave us with. I want to have that kind of an encounter with Jesus Christ. Like, wow, I've never really seen anything like this before. This is pretty cool. Turn to chapter 4, verse 41. Mark 4, 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. I want to have that kind of an encounter with Christ. Mark chapter 5, verse 15. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Mark 5, verse 33. But the woman... Fearing and trembling, because she was aware of what had happened to her, she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And lastly, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. That's what Mark wants to leave us with. Just the awesomeness and the awe and the wonder of Jesus the Christ. It's not just a story. It's a person that should just have earth-shattering effect on our lives. So, in the months ahead that we're going to be jumping into the book of Mark, I'm very excited to explore with you guys Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Wonderful. And finally, let's wrap up with this. Go to Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, 29 to 32. This is an action-packed book. Mark is an action-packed book. Let's take a look at some actions here. Mark 15, 29 to 32. Those passing by, Jesus is hung on a cross. They were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! Can you imagine, you guys? 
You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him did the same thing. They also insulted him. Knowing what we know now, I just think I'd be angry if I were there. I don't know what, how I would respond. I just don't think it'd be pretty. I think I'd be really upset. But here's what I want us to take from these verses in understanding Mark. The irony was that Jesus saved us because he did not come down from the cross. He saved us because he did not come down from the cross. And so here, these verses show me three great actions. This is an action book. Three great actions taken by Jesus in Mark 15 that we just read. Jesus was crucified. He allowed himself to be crucified. And then when he was crucified, even when people came by and mocked him, he stayed on the cross. He didn't come down. That's an action. He chose to stay in that place that he was called to be, a crucified Messiah. And sometimes we need to stay in places where God has us and it hurts and we're in pain. And that's the action we need to take is we just need to stay. Interesting, right? And then, of course, the third action is he resurrected. Mark is full of action, and I am excited to explore that with you starting in two weeks. Amen? Let's pray. And when I'm done praying, the prayer team will be available to your right, my left. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the gospel of Mark. We thank you, Lord, for the power and the wonder of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray in the weeks and the months ahead and in this new year that we would experience Jesus Christ with awe and wonder like we never have before. Lord, may we be amazed in the way that Mark intended for us to be amazed when we encounter Jesus Christ, our Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.